Well, good morning, Glenkirk family. Whether you're uh, watching at home or out on the patio or here inside, uh, it's good to be worshiping with you today. Cindy and I are just back from our trip to Kansas City visiting two of our kids. And so we got back on Wednesday and uh, excited to be with you. And before I dive into the message, I want to let you know that um, um, we will be having um, a special congregational meeting in two weeks, two weeks from today. Um, and that's been called by our elders, by our session, um, specifically for the purpose of electing um, our associate pastor nominating committee. Um, the names of our nominating committee's um, slate of um, nominees are in your bulletin, as well as one more elder for um, um, to begin um, in January. And so that is coming up in two weeks. It'll be right after our 1045 service. Um, we'll also use that opportunity to explain the associate pastor search process and what that looks like. But that is coming up in two weeks on October 10th. Um, you know, my oldest son, Wes, um, likes to think of himself as a farmer. Um, really, he works in the IT industry, um, but he has turned his backyard into a garden to grow fruits and vegetables, and um, we visited him in San Diego a couple of weeks ago, um, and as he was um, walking us through his garden, showing us all of his plants, we came to a tomato plant that he's getting ready to tear out and get rid of. And um, you see, the seed that he planted was supposed to be a San Marzano tomato plant, which apparently is kind of hard to grow. Um, but what actually grew was an ordinary beefsteak tomato plant. Um, apparently, the seeds that he bought have been mislabeled. So imagine planting something and carefully nurturing the seedling and, and watering it. But then what it produces is actually different than what you were expecting. Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of a story that Jesus once told about a wheat farmer. Um, there was this wheat farmer that planted wheat seeds in his field. And then at night, Jesus said, the enemies of the farmer snuck into his wheat field and planted darnel seeds as well. Now, darnel, sometimes it's called tares, is a weed. It's a plant that looks a lot like wheat, but it actually poisons other plants and it doesn't produce any grain. The farmer didn't notice until the weed and the darnel or the tares started growing up together in his wheat field. And by the time he realized it, the, the, the wheat and the darnel were so intertwined that it was impossible to separate him. And he realized he'd have to wait until it was harvest time to separate the wheat from the weeds. You know, as Christians, our faith in Jesus is like a seed. But what happens when the seed of faith is planted, but what it grows is something incompatible with faith? What happens when what we thought was the seed of faith actually produces weeds? We're four weeks into our fall series, Faith Work. Ten-week series through the New Testament book of James in the Bible. And I'm so excited that so many of you have joined uh, one of our six-week small groups that are going to follow along for the next six weeks in James. James wrote this letter that we have in the Bible so that we can make sure that we have the right kind of faith. The kind of faith that produces fruit 
that is in keeping with faith. Or to put it another way, James writes to make sure that what we think is the seed of faith growing in our lives has not been mislabeled. So it's not producing something else. That if a person claims to have Christian faith, but that faith leads them to to live in ways that go against the way of life that Jesus calls us to, James questions whether the seed that was planted in our lives is really the seed of faith or whether it was mislabeled. So today we're going to talk about faith work without favoritism. And I want to warn you in advance that today's message may make you feel a little uncomfortable. It made me a little uncomfortable preparing it this week. But today, from James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, we're going to see that an authentic faith in Jesus, the seed of faith, will never produce favoritism in our lives. And uh, so let's begin in James chapter 2, verse 1. And James gets right to the point. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Must not show favoritism. So what exactly is favoritism? The English Standard Version translates it partiality. The New English Translation translates it prejudice. The Low and Nida Greek-English lexicon, this is the dictionary that Wycliffe Bible translators around the world use to translate the Bible. They, they define the Greek word translated favoritism this way, that it's making unjust distinctions between people by treating one person better than another. Unjust distinctions between people that lead a person to treat one person better than another. These distinctions are usually based on external factors like a person's appearance or how they're dressed or how they talk. And in the Greek text here in verse 1, James uses this noun in its plural form, favoritisms, to suggest that there's more than one kind of favoritism. But in verses 2 through 4, James gives us a very practical example of favoritism based on economic class. Look at verses 2 through 4. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a, gold ring and, or wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Here James pictures a worship service like ours, just about ready to get started. And as the Christians gather for worship, a wealthy man walks into the service. Everybody knows he's wealthy because of how he's dressed, a gold ring and fine clothes, maybe the ancient equivalent to a Rolex watch and an Armani suit. And several biblical scholars have noted that the description of how this man is dressed in this verse fits how men of the Roman equestrian social class would often dress back then. According to historian Dwayne Watson, the equestrian social class in ancient Rome represented the top one-tenth of one percent of the wealthy in the ancient Roman Empire. 
And since this wealthy man comes in, he's not sure where to sit, we can assume, I think, this is his first time visiting the worship service, this church. But at the very same time, a poor man walks into the worship service. And we know he's poor because of how he's dressed in filthy old clothes. In fact, the Greek word that James uses here doesn't just mean worn out or shabby. It means soiled and smelly. And in James's example, the church fawns all over the wealthy guy, flattering him and giving him a seat of honor, and it barely tolerates the poor man. Makes him stand to the side or makes him sit at their feet, symbolizing his position of servitude at the bottom of the social economic ladder. It's as if the church is saying, you belong at our feet. It's kind of an outrageous example that James gives. And we, we can't help but wonder, is, is he being hypothetical here? Or did this really happen in the church he's writing to? But James is saying that the unequal treatment of these two men, based on their economic status, is an example of the sin of favoritism. Now, James uses uh, an economic example of favoritism because that was a problem among the Christians he was writing to. This comes up several times throughout the book of James. But again, the fact that he uses the plural noun for favoritism in verse 1 suggests that there's more than one kind of favoritism. Sometimes people make unjust distinctions between people, leading them to treat one person better than another based on other factors, based on a person's race or ethnicity. Christian author Philip Yancey um, describes what happened at the church that he grew up in. Yancey grew up attending a, a very large church in Atlanta, Georgia. And he says that during the civil rights movement of the 1960s, that the church ushers were trained to remove any African Americans who came into the worship service. They would walk up to the person and give them a card. And on the card, it would say something like, we believe your reason to be here is be disruptive, and we kindly ask you to leave. We are happy to tell you about a relationship with Jesus in private. That's favoritism too, only it's based on race instead of economic status. Sometimes people show favoritism based on a person's age, or their gender, or their job, or their culture, or how they dress, or their accent, or their religion. Whenever we make unjust distinctions between people that lead us to treat one person as better than another person, that is the sin of favoritism that James is talking about here. So here's my main point today, and if you don't hear anything else, hear this. An authentic faith in Jesus Christ will lead us to actively treat all people with equality. The seed of faith, if it is real will never grow into the fruit of favoritism in a person's life. Now, that doesn't mean the Christians are free from favoritism, far from it. But it does mean that our Christian faith, if it's real, will never reinforce our favoritism, but it will challenge it. It will convict us of it. And as we grow in our discipleship, it will lead us away from favoritism. Now, using the example that James gives us here, let's dig a little deeper into how this, this thing works. Favoritism begins with a bias. 
begins with a bias. Uh, a bias is an inner predisposition to hold a negative opinion towards certain people. This church that James talks about had a bias about poor people. We all have bias in our lives. Some we're conscious of, others that we're not conscious of. And we develop our bias as we go through life, through our experiences and, and how our parents, ra families raised us and, and our teachers and the communities we live in and the media and so on and so forth. Because of where and how Philip Yancey grew up, he developed a bias about African-American people that he didn't question until he became an adult. Sometimes people are biased against women having certain jobs or against older people or against single people, or against people who have an accent, or against Christians, or against police officers, or against a particular political party, or against people in the military, and the list goes on and on and on of the kinds of biases that people develop through time. We all have bias. Some we're conscious of, some we're not conscious of. But bias becomes prejudice when this inner disposition leads us to form an unfavorable opinion about a particular person or a particular group of people. That's when bias moves into prejudice. The, the word prejudice comes from the two words prejudge, making a judgment about someone or something before we have all the facts. The church James is writing to, in the example he gives, formed a preconceived unfavorable opinion about the poor man who came into their worship service. When we see someone we have a bias about, we often create a story in our own head about that person before we know anything about them. So someone with a bias about homeless people when they see a homeless person, might create a story in their head that that person is addicted to drugs or that person just won't get a job before they actually know that particular person. Now, let me give you an example that I'm actually ashamed to admit, and I really prayed about whether I should share this example or not and felt like I should. Um, when I was an associate pastor at Lake Avenue Church in Pasadena, um, I commuted back and forth from Glendora to Pasadena, uh, taking the Gold Line train most days. Now, Lake Avenue Church is the most multi-ethnic, multicultural congregation that I've ever pastored at, and I learned a lot during my time there. But one night after a really long meeting, I went down the stairs on the train, um, to the train platform at Lake Avenue in Pasadena, and I noticed that the only other person on the platform other than me was a young African-American man in his 20s. And as soon as I saw him, I started feeling anxious about my safety. My unconscious bias interpreted his presence as a threat. Maybe that bias came from things my stepdad said when I was a teenager growing up or from my experiences of getting bullied when I went to fifth grade in Compton or from things I saw on the media. But that's how I felt. But then I started looking closer. And I noticed that this guy had work boots and was carrying a lunchbox. And I realized that he was commuting home from work just like I was that night. You see, my anxiety was a prejudgment that came from within myself that originated from my bias. 
our bias can lead us to make prejudgments. And then prejudging or prejudice can lead to discrimination. That's the word that James uses here in verse 4. The church that he's talking about in verses 2 through 4 discriminated when they gave the wealthy man the seat of honor and they made the poor man sit on the floor. If when I was on that train platform, if I had called the police, I would have been guilty of discrimination. Instead, I, I analyzed my reaction and realized it was a result of my own bias. Our bias leads us to prejudge people and then if we act on that prejudgment, in unfair and unjust ways, James says in verse 4 of chapter 2, we discriminate among ourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. And this is where things like racism and sexism and ageism and classism and a bunch of other isms come from. And when enough people in a group engage in favoritism, that becomes embedded in that group's way of doing things. Now, I know this is hard to admit that we do this sometimes. I didn't want to admit my bias on the train platform with you. We'd like to believe that we're all basically good people, that our hearts are in the right place. But if we take the Bible's teaching about sin seriously and the effects of sin, we have to admit that it's infected how we look at people and how we perceive people. The, the prophet Jeremiah says that the human heart is desperately wicked and beyond cure, that we can't even understand our own hearts. Christian theologians have called this the noetic effects of sin, the, the impact of sin on how we see and perceive the world around us. We all have bias. We don't all have the same bias, but we all have bias. Verses 5 through 13 give us the reasons why an authentic faith in Jesus will never lead us to favoritism, but will always lead us to treat people with equality. So let's explore these verses. Verses 5 in the beginning of verse 6 says this, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Th throughout the Bible, God shows special concern for those who are oppressed, who are pushed to the margins of society. James says God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. That doesn't mean that, that all people um, who are poor are Christians, but it does mean that people who have been pushed aside in this world are more open to Jesus than those who haven't. And God delights in showing mercy to people who have been denied mercy in the world they live in. God honors the poor, but the people James was writing to were dishonoring them. So here's the first reason that treating people with equality honors those God honors. It honors those who God honors. I got a phone call a while back from a friend asking me if I would be available to lead a communion service for a group of professional athletes who happened to be in town. And my immediate reaction was, yeah, sure, I'd love to do that. But at the time, I was thinking a lot about this passage from James chapter 2. And I started to wonder if I would have had the same initial reaction 
if he'd asked me to serve a communion service in a homeless shelter or in a jail or in a retirement home. As it turned out, leading that communion service didn't work out, but it got me thinking, who am I honoring? In N.T. Wright's commentary on James, he says that the world is always assessing people, sizing them up and putting them down, establishing a pecking order. When we only honor those who are honored in the eyes of the world, when we give in to favoritism, we mirror the world's pecking order. But treating people with equality honors those who God honors. Now look at the second half of verse 6 into verse 7. Is, not, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? And are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Here James reminds the Christians he's writing to that they too have been victimized by wealthy, powerful people. See, the early church, it didn't have a lot of wealthy members. There there were a couple, but the vast majority of people in the early church have more in common with the poor guy that came into the the worship service than they did with the guy with the gold ring and the expensive clothes. And so James points out the inconsistency of them fawning all over the guy with the Rolex watch and the Armani suit when it was people like that guy, maybe even that guy himself, who were exploiting them and dragging them into court with frivolous lawsuits and saying horrible things about Jesus. It's the second reason why faith leads to equality. Treating people with equality resists the world's injustice. It resists the world's injustice. See, when we engage in favoritism, we play the world's game by the world's rules. And every society... Every culture plays this game. Every society makes unjust distinctions between people, leading them to treat some people better than others. Whether it's how one tribe treats another in Rwanda, or how one caste treats another in India, or how some of the men in Afghanistan treat women. But our own culture is not exempt from this. We have our own history of how we've treated Native Americans, of how we treated children of poverty who were in the workforce in the 1800s, of how we treat the unborn, of how we treat people descended from slaves. Every society plays the world's game by the world's rules. And when we as Christians show favoritism, we join in in that game. But when we treat people with equality, we actually resist the world's game. In fact, one of the most profoundly powerful things you as a Christian can do to resist evil in our world today is not taking up arms in rebellion or posting something on Facebook, but it's treating people well. Treating people well as an act of your faith. Treating people with equality resists the world's injustice. And that's a great segue into verses 8 through 13, the final section we'll look at. James says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. 
But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery, the seventh commandment, also said you shall not murder, the sixth commandment. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. So speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James says that the highest command of God here is to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. He calls it the royal law because it, more than any command, more than any part of the law, reflects the values of the kingdom of God. And our King Jesus said it was among the greatest commandments. And that if people who claim to have authentic Christian faith are obeying the royal law of love, then all is right. But a Christian who makes unjust distinctions between people that leads them to treat some as better than others, isn't living right. James says that breaking this royal law of love makes us lawbreakers, transgressors of God's law. And we can't say, well, sure, I broke that law, but at least I didn't break this other law. Can you imagine getting pulled over for speeding and you plead your case to the police officer by listing all of the traffic laws that you didn't break? I would love to see how that conversation goes. To make his case, James cites the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And James is following the lead of Jesus here. This is what Jesus did in his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said that the sixth commandment against murder, it's not just about violence and killing people, it's how we treat people. That verbal abuse of people, calling them fools and idiots is a form of murder, that angry outbursts against people in rage is a form of murder. And here James adds favoritism as a form of murder. When our biases cause us to prejudge people and then we act unjustly towards people, we're breaking the sixth commandment. James wants us to know that even though our sins have been forgiven through our faith in Jesus, that God still expects us to live out Jesus' royal command of love. And that if we refuse to show mercy to those who have need, and if we show favoritism instead, why should we expect mercy from God? But with God, mercy always triumphs over judgment. The third reason, treating people with equality fulfills God's highest command to love. It fulfills God's highest command to love. Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was. He said, it's to love God with all within you and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I know this has been a heavy message today. And I hope it leads to some good conversations in our faith work small groups this week. But you know, as I look back on my life, I can see many times in my life when I have been guilty of the sin of favoritism. I grew up in a home where my stepdad often made racist comments that created biases within me. There have been times when I've treated women as inferior to men. I've prejudged people based on their appearance or their politics or their religion. 
I have regrets. And I suspect most of us do. The point of James chapter 2 is not that Christians are free from favoritism. His point is that our Christian faith will never lead us into favoritism. But if it's real, it will lead us out of it. It will convict us and help us grow and mature. And history is filled with examples of how the Christian faith has done this. From Philip Yancey, the Christian author I talked about, who began to question his racial bias when he was in college and became an adult. Or consider a more recent example. Consider a man named Ken Parker. Ken was a neo-Nazi who participated in the 2017 Charlottesville rally. Less than a year after that rally, Ken came to faith in Jesus through a pastor named William McKinnon. He denounced his racism and his affiliation with the groups that he was part of as he was baptized and joined a historically black church. The seed of faith in Ken's life caused him to grow out of favoritism and into equality. But sadly, history is also filled with many people who say they have the seed of faith, but then who express that faith in favoritism, which make us wonder, was the seed mislabeled if it's producing something else? May we as Glenkirk, as a church, be a place where the seed of authentic Christian faith is always leading us forward in our own imperfect journey of treating people well, of loving people, of honoring people, thus fulfilling the royal law of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words, Lord, such convicting words, and yet such important words. And God, we confess that, as I confess, that as I look back on my life, I can see times when I have failed to, to, to live up to what you've called us to. And I thank you that with me, mercy triumphs over judgment. With us, mercy triumphs over judgment. May that mercy make us merciful. May the fact that you show no partiality cause us to be people who are impartial. May you continue us in our journey, imperfect though it is, as we grow in the likeness of your son Jesus, the one we love, the one we confess. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.